Neyse ben yeni çıkama ne yapayım? Sorry, my phone was showering a little can wet. Can you hear me? I can hear you. No, it's okay, don't worry. I'm just waiting for Ariella to come on up. Wait, what was that? I said I'm just waiting for Ariella to come on up. I just invited her, let me do that again. She's online, I just need to invite her. Wait, what was that? I need Ariella, our guest, to come on up. She's online already, but I don't know if she knows how to um, to work it. Sorry, give me Sorry? Oh, she's offline again. Why is she offline? Okay, sorry. Hi. It's okay. Hey, I'm just waiting for Ariella to come on up. Oh, she was online. She just disappeared. I don't get it. No, she's offline now. I'm just gonna give her a few minutes. So what are you up to? I just got out of the shower. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. We're still waiting for our guest to show up. I'm going to be here, but I'm going to be changing, so I'm on. What do you mean? On? What do you mean you're going to be changing? I keep inviting her, but she's not. She was online and then now she's off, so I don't know what's going on. Maybe her phone died? I have no idea. I'm going to try to message her on Clubhouse to see what she's doing. My phone is literally exploding. I don't know what she's doing. She's not on Clubhouse either. I don't know. Otherwise, it's just going to be us two talking to each other. Sounds good. I mean, Sounds until good she shows me. up. Yeah, I mean, if you want, we can start. And then when she shows up, um, we, can, we can just like, um, you know, bring it back to her and, and her story. So I don't know if you have, because um, I mean, you know, the other day on, on Clubhouse, we had this whole um holocaust memorial room where you know everybody was kind of sharing the stories of you know their family and it was it was actually quite moving um and it was nice because it was a closed room so not everyone could um could actually put in so there was you know no trolls no anything like that so that was that was quite nice but i don't know if you had a chance to talk and to kind of tell your story because everyone has one to be honest with you, I don't really know the full story. Like, I just know that my grandpa died with tattoo a tattoo on his arm of numbers. That was his ID. That was his name. Was he That's, on death camp? Was he like in Eastern Europe? I have. He was in Poland, but okay. I have I have no idea like the details. Unfortunately, yeah, I mean, it's not like it was really talked about. You know, this is the thing too. Like, because. Um, uh, even my my grandfather on my mom's side, who um, he he wasn't in a camp. He was because um, he joined the French resistance early on, and he was actually quite lucky in the sense that he was in uh, the part of France that wasn't occupied by Nazi Germany. Um, so he decided to join the French resistance, and he was made prisoner twice, um, and he managed to escape every time. Um, 
and he got really lucky because they just had no idea they just you know thought that he was a regular you know french resistance fighter so that meant that they sent you to the like military camp you know where they held the you know the prisoners but he wasn't mistreated as such i mean it wasn't fun um but they they were not you know killing killing off people or sending them um you know to the to the gas chambers or anything like that on on the other side of my family um on on my father's side they um they escaped because they were in um in spain so they had to escape because my grandfather had the great idea as well of being not only jewish but um a communist so he was hunted down by franco for you know both those offenses and he tried to escape to um the plan was to go to israel and to um to stop in north africa to do that so they ended in in tunisia and as soon as they landed in tunisia they were just sent to the camp and this is the thing that um always amazes me but not in a good way is that a lot of people just keep thinking that all the camps and everything we're limited to Eastern Europe. So, you know, when people think of the Holocaust, they just think about, um, you know, Auschwitz or Birkenau, or, you know, yep. um, all those different places. And they have no understanding that it wasn't just there. I mean, it was it was all over North Africa, you know, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. Um, yeah. And yeah. And the worst part is that Nazi Germany actually occupied Tunisia for a little bit. I think it was about between six to nine months. And that's when they went, they were brutal. Uh, when it came to, you know, the Jewish solution, where they really wanted to, uh, you know, get rid of uh, as many people as they could, they sent them to, uh, you know, a labor camp, where they literally, like, killed, you know, killed them, just making them work on stupid railway um, and things like that, starving them to death. Um, and in other cases, they were just shooting people down and, you know, using them as um, target practice. It's horrible. But yeah. My grandparents didn't really talk about it, you know, the kind of treatment that they received. It was really random. Um, and my uncle, who was, he was quite young at the time, uh, used to, you know, to, uh, to randomly kind of tell us stories. But it was usually kind of brought about, you know, if something, something was happening, for example, in the house or it just, it was just so random the way that he was telling our stories. And I remember this one time where um, I think I was about eight or nine years old and he really shut me up because um, we used to tease him because he had this, um, what we thought was a silly habit, where, you know, whenever he was eating bread, <clears throat> if there were crumbs on the table, he used to gather them and eat them. And yeah. we used to, think, yeah, we used to think it was really funny because we were telling him like, you know, why are you doing this? He looks so silly doing it because whether we were at a restaurant or, you know, uh, a friend's house or, you know, at home, he used to do this all the time, systematically. Um, and once I was just, and I was just a kid and I was just, you know, I was teasing him about it. And I was saying, oh, you know, why are you doing this? And, you know, you're being so silly. There's plenty of bread, you know, um, why, you know, just, you know, why would you do that? And while saying this, I remember, because I remember really clearly because it, it really shocked me. Um, I had a piece of bread and I just like, my, my auntie was, you know, collecting the plates and I just threw it on the plate because I didn't want it. So I just threw it back in the plate for her to take away. And my uncle literally blew up um, and he got really angry with me, telling me that you have to finish your piece of bread. So it kind of turned into an argument with him. I was like, no, I'm not hungry. And then he told me, he told me when I was in a camp, uh, he told me I I was so hungry that I was forced to eat grass. And when you go through something like this, you respect food, in particular bread, because there was a time where I didn't have bread. So he told me, you're going to finish your piece of bread. And never ask me again why I'm collecting the the breadcrumbs. And you know his face, and it, it wasn't so much anger. It was there was a lot of pain. Um, and as a kid, it really, really kind of um, I don't know if the word shock is the right word, but it kind of it really imprinted on me. Yeah. Um, because for the first time, I really and uh, again, I think I was so young, I didn't really comprehend what that meant. But I really was faced to you know I. I you could see the pain, the suffering, the trauma, and, you know, just, um, you know, the idea of having, because I adored my uncle, the idea that he was, as a young kid, you know, forced to eat grass to survive, uh, broke my heart. And I, I remember my auntie just, like, broke into tears, um, because she, she knew, she knew more than we did, because he, uh, he kind of opened up to her, but, you know, and, and through, throughout my childhood, he used to um, give us, you know, pieces, but it's, it's not something that he could talk about. 
and uh, it was really, really traumatic. My grandma um, lost her son, uh, Michael. He was two years old. He didn't survive. Uh, he died of hunger and typhoid. Um, and this is the, the one trauma that she literally did not recover from. She had chronic depression after that. And uh, even after, yeah, even after my father was born, because he was the last one, there's a 16 year gap in between him and his uh, brother and sister. Um, she, she could not raise him because um, I was told that every time that she was looking at my father's face, she could see, uh, she could see the son that she lost <clears throat> and she never got over it. Never, ever. And um, so my, my father was actually raised by his sister because she couldn't. She was so traumatized by what had happened to her. Uh, and she lived in fear that it could happen again. It was terrible. Absolutely can, terrible. Can you imagine what, like, the Holocaust survivors are feeling right now? I know. But do, do you know that what, what, what I found really, really sad is that I don't think that people appreciate the... I think it's been so... You know, there's been so many movies and series and things like that that I feel it's almost it has become so public in a way that the the news doesn't even shock people anymore. Do you know when they hear stories, and it's so moving, but they, I've noticed that people are just so casual about it, and and I don't think they understand what it takes for you know survivors to actually share their stories because they have to relieve it when they're telling us, and it's such a gift that they're giving us by you know allowing us to look into their trauma and and, and relieving the the horrors that they've witnessed and suffered in in their flesh um i just feel that people are not paying enough respect for the the, the effort and the, the um, it's a gift you know for to uh, to teach us just you know you, you really should never ever again I don't know. It's just, I'm very kind of uh, ambivalent about it because, you know, on the one hand, I want people to talk about it and talk about it until we blew in the face so that maybe people could hear it. But I feel that because it's been talked about um, and I don't like the way that the media is, you know, is presenting the stories. Yeah. People just are so, so very casual about things, you know, and they say, oh, you know, again with the Holocaust. And I'm thinking like, yes, again, again. And we're going to talk about it, you know, as long as anti-Semitism is a thing, as long as people can rationalize racism, yes, we're going to talk about it. Because when we, don't, I will die talking about it. Like, yeah, because when we don't talk about it, look what happens. Exactly, and you know it's it's sad because the younger generation is so underinformed about the Holocaust. Like I think it's two thirds of young people under. 40, I want to say, don't even know how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust. And can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. And half of those, um, half of those actually believe that it was under 2 million. And it's, it's sad. Like they know they don't know much about it. They know that we're genocide victims. Like how can somebody sit there? And align and make every excuse possible for genocide victims to not have rights to safety. Like, how can you call yourself um, a social justice activist mm-hmm. and work against genocide victims? That makes no sense. I know. I know. And- I mean, do you know, I've I've seen I've seen um, certain documentaries and programs that with you know, almost challenging their accounts, you know, saying, oh, but it, it didn't really happen like this. Because, you know, for example, when survivors, you know, are telling you, you know, um, I walked through a corridor and, you know, the, the door was on my right or on my left. Do you know how sometimes, you know, with, with trauma, memories play tricks on you? Yeah. And um, you can't always remember. I mean, you think you remember, but, you know, some of the details are a bit, um, you know, sketchy, like, you know, trauma does this to a person it distorts memory uh but it doesn't take away from the fact that it did happen and everything that they're telling you is accurate um that people are trying to challenge them and i I just i just found that so profoundly disrespectful to the suffering that they endured and for, for years and the fact that they survived this is a miracle and and people should pay respect you know to those people and their memories and not try to dissect everything that they say and uh I feel there's, there's, in a way, it's almost to try to rationalize, you know, fascism and say, um, 
where if, if it didn't happen exactly the way you describe it, then it's almost as if it didn't happen. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Like it's a confirmation bias, right? They already believe what they believe and they're looking for anything they can find to justify what they already believe. Yeah. It's, it's just, I don't know. It, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. And, and I think that uh, the kind of disrespect that I've seen on, on Clubhouse over the past few years, uh, past few days, sorry, um, I just found it quite shocking. I mean, you know, in, in several rooms where we're talking and, and, and trolls literally came in advocating for, you know, um, for the death of all Jews, saying that Hitler was a great man, that, you know, he didn't finish the job. That it's, in, it's, it's, so, it's so cruel, you know, like... Oh, I know. And, 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 you know, just today, actually, somebody said, I feel like you guys exploited the Holocaust to get a, get your land or whatever, and you just use it to your advantage. How yeah. can you say that? That's disgusting. Who would tell a genocide, like descendants of a genocide victim that, like, you have to be a horrible person. Uh. But they don't seem, they don't seem to, um, I don't know, they don't seem to connect. There's something about anti-Semitism that is so rampant that people are completely dissociating the, the horrors that happened during the Holocaust um, and, and the hatred that they're peddling right now. You know, it, it is as if it didn't happen or, or, or that it wasn't enough somewhat. And, and the fact that, you know, this kind of narrative is actually tolerated in the media in the name of free speech uh, is repulsive to me and something needs to change, you know, and I, I, am a great advocate for free speech, but I think that the second you're actually rationalizing the, the kind of horror that the Nazi regime did, um, and to some extent continue to advocate, you know, through the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, you know, and other groups, um, you know, should be, should be outlawed, you know, in such, um, in such a strict way that it's, we, we can't allow for people ever to um, to discuss it unless it's to condemn, you know, anti-Semitism and racism. We can't we can't tolerate for people to still, in the name of his speech, to uh, you know to to be that violent in their speech and in their ideas. We, we can't. It's it's not twenty yeah. first century. I don't think there's a space for it. And I used to think once upon a time, you know, that people are entitled to their belief, and that maybe, uh, you know, maybe if we allow them to speak. You know, it's 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 better in a way because otherwise we're going to drive them underground and maybe, um, you know, they're going to become more, more radicalized in their views. But I've seen over the years, like it's it's just empowering people. It's rationalizing, you know, something that should never be rationalized, and and making it almost common because people get used to the language of hate and they think that oh, because nobody's reacting to it, people are not going to jail, um, people are not being censored. Um, that it means that it can't be that bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that, and it's quite dangerous to have that kind of intellectual exercise. But I mean, I, I see it every day. And even the way that it's covered in the news, um, you know, the the way that people remember, it's almost, uh, you know, it has become like a Easter Sunday or Christmas. It's like, it's just a thing that people do, but it's divorced from its true meaning. You know, it's, like, it's just like, oh, it's something that it's like an exercise that we have to do every year and we have to, you know, to to have a minute of silence to remember the dead. But we're not going to actually discuss uh, what truly happened and why. Because it happened for a reason, because people were quiet in the face of fascism. And people thought that it doesn't really matter because it's not happening to us right now. It's happening to the Jews. And they're so used to, you know, for the Jews to become the scape, to, to, to be the scapegoats of history that um, it's almost as if it didn't really happen because it didn't happen to them. Exactly. And they don't see themselves as part of us, so they don't care. I I feel like society is just, it's very self-centered, right? Like everybody, everybody is struggling with something, but to them it's their whole world and nothing else matters. That's why I I feel like that's why they take advantage of like, economic downturns or downfalls to um start picking on us well there's always you know the 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 countless conspiracy theories that they could they continue to peddle um you always you know if you scratch just a little bit 
it doesn't matter even what they're talking about. They could be talking about aliens or, you know, the, the lizard conspiracy. It's, you know, beside the point. If you scratch long enough, and usually it's about five minutes, um, you know, then the Jewish question comes into, you know, as a, a, a center stage to the conversation. And then suddenly, you know, we become, you know, the evil of the world and everything revolves around us. And it's just, I, I, would, I really wish that people could get over this or at least, you know, call it what it is. At least have the decency, you know, to admit publicly that, you know, this is anti-Semitism and this is who you are. Stop hiding yeah. behind, you know, I don't mean to, you know, I, I, you know, I don't mean to say this, but I'm still going to say it because I know that not, not only people would listen to, to what is it I'm saying without condemning what I'm saying, uh, but somewhat is going to echo with, with people. Because it's so ingrained in people's psyche that it's it's almost becoming um, it's a theme that is weaved around their identity. That you can't you can't be like a good um, you know Western leftist unless you're anti-Semitic. No, it's true. And you know, honestly, like I feel like you know I respect people that can sit there and say, oh well, you know I'm not going to take a side because I don't really know, like or like you know at least let me hear the other side, like. It's not going to hurt me any, like, especially if you don't have skin in the game yourself, let's hear both sides. Right. Mm. But yeah. no, they just jump to conclusions. They think what they already want to believe and they just rely on confirmation bias. And because of confirmation bias, they start micromanaging us. Right. They like start abusing us and bullying us and being violent towards us. And then when we respond, we're the evil ones. I know. I mean, look, since since I keep going back to Clubhouse, but seriously, it's been such an education because it's the first time that I've been truly confronted with public opinion as far as anti-Semitism goes and, and people's views of, you know, the Holocaust and, and how their brain jumps to, you know, from one thing to the other without understanding that they actually there's no connection in between what it is that they're saying. Um, but they have to justify the belief system, you know, when they're being uh, confronted with, you know, the opposing argument by blaming the Jews. And it's something that baffles me. You know, this ability that they have, you, you, you might be talking about the, you know, the world economy and inflation, and they will jump and say, oh, the Jews, you know, did this and did that. And I'm thinking it's neither here nor there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even talking about, you know, the Jews or Israel or even politics. I'm talking about the economy and inflation, for God's sake. But people will find a way to to link it back to either Israel or the Jews altogether. And yeah, that there, needs to stop as well. It there's really nothing in the world. There's nothing in the world that we aren't blamed for. I swear, like it's because we're seen. We're seen as part of the power structure, even though we're not. We're a tiny I minority. I don't know if it's just that because I, I thought about it and I'm thinking. I think. I think it has a lot to do with um, the kind of language that is coming out of the Islamic Republic of Iran and ultimately Russia, because I don't think we talk right enough. now. Yes. Yeah. I don't think we talk enough about the link that communism uh, has in structuring anti-Semitism as a, as a school of thought and, and, and how it has supported terrorism across the Middle East and how it has been used by the, by, by Russia. Um, and I mean, when I'm saying when I'm saying Russia, I'm talking about the Soviet Union essentially. But it has been carried out, um, you know, by by Russia today, modern day Russia, um, where they wanted to export the ideology to the Middle East, understanding that you know being openly um, communist might not serve their purpose because um, the region wasn't so keen to espouse you know communism as a you know, as a whole, they were more like, you know, they had more socialist tendency and they were very nationalist. So it didn't really work out. Um, so they sold, you know, anti-Semitism, thinking we're going to, you know, we're going to divide and conquer. Uh, we're going to be supporting all those, you know, terror groups and actually basically buy several countries such as Iran to, you know, the ideology of anti-Semitism in order to project our power through them as, you know, a cli um, client state. And, and I don't think, and today all we saw is the Islamic Republic of Iran being, you know, the greatest supporter of terrorism across the world. But we don't understand that behind the Islamic Republic of Iran stands Russia. Yep, I've been saying it. They're playing a proxy war with Iran, their face. Exactly. And, and, and the West has been dragged into, into this uh, little war game 
um, without really understanding where the true front line is in my mind. And again, I'm going back to anti-Semitism. And it's not like it's not like I have nothing else to talk about about anti-Semitism. But at the end of the day, this is where the you know the the problem started. And if we address this, we deconstruct the whole narrative of fascism. And this kind of new colonialism that is coming by way of a political ideology that is, you know, anchored in anti-Semitism because they just need to, to find, you know, a scapegoat. They needed to find a way to unite the Arab world while maintaining, exactly. while maintaining countries, you know, in, in, a, in a state of division so that they could hate one enemy. Remain, yeah. remain disengaged, you know, from... Um, you know, the idea that maybe they should work together to advance and prosper. Oh, um, Ariella, so you, know, you know, I'm sorry. Sorry, I interrupted. Ariella oh, wonderful. Let, let me bring her in. That's, that's perfect. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, not at all. I didn't pay attention. I didn't know she was here. Ariella, you, you, you would need to accept um, the invitation to come on up. Yeah, and I, I noticed that too because you 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 hear all this Jews are Nazis, Zionists are Nazis. Those are communists telling other communists that Jews are their enemy. Exactly. Nazis will call Jews dirty communists because to them we're their enemy. Mm-hmm. Even even when um Islamist extremists they'll you know, they'll label anybody they see as a threat to their rule. A Jew, because we're their common enemy. It's it is a hundred percent about organizing power and uniting people against the common enemy, and we're always that common enemy. Oh, yeah. Ariella, welcome to Disruptive. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Welcome, Ariella. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm just going to introduce you to to our listeners. So um, we're going to have a discussion today with Ariella Sabra, who very kindly. Um, volunteered to to share, you know, her story about the Holocaust and what her family went through. And um, I heard you talk, Ariella, in, uh, on Clubhouse the other day, and I thought that you were very moving. And I, I really wanted to hear what you had to say because I think it's important today that you know we give um, a voice to the to those who can't talk anymore, uh, who can't tell us what what they went through, and that we also remember the many many heroes um that helped save countless life and and are in a way you know instrumental to us being here today um to be able to um to not only oppose fascism but actually shed a light on uh a part of our history that you know is not not very pleasant right uh and i appreciate an opportunity to talk about my family because my parents unfortunately died before um, the Steven Spielberg organization started recording um, uh, stories. So uh, I appreciate this because uh, their story needs to be told. Absolutely. As all stories need to be told. Yeah. So do you want to ask me specific questions or should I just start? No, I just, I just, um, I feel it's a lot more powerful if you just, you know, tell us your story in your own words, and um, we're just gonna listen to you and um, and pay respect to, uh, you know, to to your family and your story. Thank you. Okay, so uh, my parents came from Poland. They lived in Poland, and with their families, and. Uh, they lived in a, a small area in uh, near the German border, and uh, my mother came from a small uh, town called Dombrovogonica, and my father came from a smaller smaller town called Zalguja, and they were neighboring. They were like right beside each other, bordering each other, and another city that was near them was Benjin and Sosnovich, and then the biggest city that was near them was Katowice. Katowice. So my mother had two brothers. She was the oldest and she had two younger brothers and she, her mother was very young and her father was, uh, I guess her mother was 39 when she was murdered and her father was in his forties. So 
and my father had one sis one brother who was two years older than him. They looked very much alike. And he had uh, his father, his father had been murdered in a butcher store when he was very young. So his mother remarried someone. And so he has a stepsister as well. He had a stepsister. So story came the the Nazis invaded Germany in 1939 when my mother was 19 years old and my father was 22. My mother, um, I didn't hear very much about things that happened because uh, they didn't talk about it even though when I was young, it, when I was very young, I felt like they did talk about it but when I got older and more mature, I realized they just kept telling the same story over and over again. And I realized how much information I was missing. I was missing almost everything except for a few stories. So in 1939, the Nazis came, uh, they were put in the ghetto. I don't, um, their area, Dombrovo, there was a ghetto there, but there was also a ghetto in Benjin and in Sosnovich uh, called Jradula, and uh, I don't know which ghetto they were in. And in uh, I, I just know that in 19, that when my mother had told me that they didn't want people to know that they were starving so that they used to boil water and pretended it was soup when people came over. So this was, and they had a dog, they had a spitz. And uh, I know that the Nazis, shot the spits and uh i never even when i found that out i didn't even ask well what did they do to my family well after they shot the spits or the same time don't even know the dog's name so my in 1942 this is when uh they had the Wan C conference the nazis had the the 80 minute long Wan C conference it took 80 minutes for them to to decide that they were going to annihilate annihilate the Jews and they uh, and solve the Jewish question so uh, the Jewish problem so it, that was the same year my mother was told along with other girls her age and and uh, I'm not sure what the ex, what the span of ages were but girls her age women her age at that time she was 21 that uh, they were to meet somewhere in the town and she went because if you didn't go you'd be shot and she went and then her she was taken gathered together with all the other women and they were taken to a girls secretarial school in Sosnovich the nearby biggest bigger city and uh, she was there for three days and uh, I just remember two things about that that she told me or she only told me about two things one was that they had a bucket to uh to eliminate their uh, you know their when they had to go to the bathroom they had a sh they had to share a bucket and there were hundreds of girls she said it was crowded and they and and the bucket was like it was really offensive and awful and that her mother found out where she was and her mother came to the girls school and tried to see her and probably to get her tried to get her out but they wouldn't let her go and they wouldn't let her see but for some i just have i don't remember if it actually my mother said this or if it was a romantic notion of mine but i imagine that my mother saw her out a window or down the stairs and and reached out to her and they couldn't see each other and I, I think I said that because yeah I think my mother said that was the last time she saw her so um, I, I should say I'm 66 years old and and uh, and uh, my mother died in 1982 very young 63 she was I'm older than her what she was she was only 63 when she died and so I don't remember the story as well as I did but she went to the camps the first camp she went to after the three days in uh, in uh, 
what's called the Durchgangsplatz, which is where they were taken. They were gathered together before they were shipped off to the camps. It means a going through place, like a just a station, a stopover. So uh, she went to the first camp. She went to what's called Blechamel, Blech's Iron. And, um, and she went there and she was, uh, and that later on, Blechamel was near Auschwitz. Oh, I should say uh, that my parents' towns were very close to Auschwitz, a 45 minute drive away from Auschwitz. So they were very close to it. And the first camp she went to, as I said, was, uh, was a satellite camp of Auschwitz, though it was a labor camp initially. So when she got there, they, they weren't tattooing anyone yet. And uh, she also, her brother, the middle brother, ended up going there as well later on. And uh, she told me the story of uh, a couple of things that I remember she said uh, of the few things that she did talk about. She said that she tried to get potatoes. She stole some potatoes so she could feed some extra potatoes so she could feed her brother and other friends that she had there. And I don't know if she worked in the kitchen. I don't know how she was had access to it, but she was caught. She was caught with the extra potatoes and she was punished by kneeling on sharp stone. They made her kneel on sharp stone for 24 hours. And uh, I don't know how she did that. And uh, luckily they didn't shoot her and uh the other thing that i know she said was during um she did get typhus and she uh, was very sick and there was a selection and i don't know which camp this happened in because she was in three camps altogether but uh, there was a selection and she told me how they had to line up naked and uh in front of the nazis and she said, even if you had a scar, a bruise anywhere on your body, which they inspected thoroughly, uh, they would they would send you to uh, to the uh, gas chamber. There was a little gas chamber, a small one, on in her um, in on her on on in this camp. And uh, there is a video of this camp of the remnants of this camp available on YouTube. So. She's so she was sick at that time. Did you want to ask something? I want to ask what was the name of the camp again? Blechhamel. B L E C H H A M M E R. Thank you. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, Blechhamel. And so she, uh, because she was sick. She, she would have been selected for the gas chambers or they either killed them there or they would, sh because they were close to Auschwitz, many of them were also sent to Auschwitz. So uh, she, um, luckily she had friends and who rescued her. They shuffled her somehow during the, during the selection, they shuffled her and hid her from one person to the other somehow. And the Nazis missed her. And uh, so her friends saved her life. And uh, that was that story. And then she was shipped out of Blechamel, but her brother still had to stay there. And that's when it became unofficial. Sat after she left, it became an official, um, uh, it was called Auschwitz V, I think, Auschwitz V or Auschwitz VI. And she, uh, and he got tattooed. And uh, she didn't see him again until after the war because he survived as well. So she was sent to the second camp was called Petoswaldau. Petos, oh, sorry, that's the third camp. She was sent to um, Oberalstadt, Oberalstadt, O-B-E-R-A-L-S-T-A-D-T. And that was in Czechoslovakia. And I didn't hear anything about that. I don't know very much about it. I did uh, look it up, and I think they, they, it was a fabric a factory that they were affiliated with because they always were put to work. And uh, she, uh, I don't know anything else about it. She did tell me that she was, she was asked to, she, they had to check eyes, eyesight at some point, 
uh, this could have been in the ghetto or it could have been in the camps where uh, you had to have really good eyesight because she was selected to put timers in bombs. That was one of her jobs, to put the timers in rockets that they would shoot. So that was what I knew about her. But in 1984, when she, after she died, my father told me that she was in a third camp, that there was a third camp called Petos Valdau that she was in and that she had never told me about. So I imagine that it was probably horrific for her if she couldn't even tell me that she was in that camp. And she, she was, uh, it, it was in Germany, so it was near, probably near the end of the war when they were moving all the people who had still survived the camps up till that point in East, in, in other areas, they were moving them into Germany. So Petas Valdau was in, was in Germany. And it's hard to find things about that, that camp, but I heard a little bit about it when I, I went to Poland with the group called Generation to Generation after my parents died. And I, I went to see my parents' friends and they told me a little bit more about about what happened about my mother, and the ones they well they told me that my mother used to sing, that after laboring in a factory, you know, wearing just clogs and you know rags and walking through the town, uh, where people would. The people in the town, the Germans in the town, saw how they were treated and what they looked like. She would sing. She, they came. She came back to the. They came back to the barracks, you know, starved and cold in the winter, and she would sing, and she would sing folk songs, traditional Yiddish songs, and it made them feel better. And uh, then uh, that's where she was liberated in 1945. Uh, when she was liberated, she found some. She they were she wanted to go back to Poland with a couple of friends to see who survived now she always thought her mother would survive because her mother was only 39 when the Nazis shipped her to Auschwitz in 1943 August 3rd 1943 is the is the date that we think the ghettos in our area and the area that my parents came from were liquidated so liquidated, for those of you who don't know, mean that the whole population was removed and that and the ghettos were done because there were no Jews in them anymore. So August 3rd, 1943, my grandmother was shipped to Auschwitz and my grandfather was shipped to Auschwitz and my mother thought she would survive because in 1943, she was only 39. Her name was... Rachel Buchala, and uh, she was gassed. Witnesses said that she was gassed immediately. And my grandfather, my mother's father, he had been injured because he had been beaten up by some Polish anti-Semites and he had a permanently injured leg. So my mother, when she was liberated, she thought that her, she would see her mother, she would find her mother, but she thought her father probably didn't survive. And she wasn't sure about her brothers. So she went to, um, she went with two friends and they were given some money, very little money to try and make their way back to Poland. And my little, and her little cousin wanted to come with a younger cousin. She was only a teenager at the time. And the two friends that my mother was with said, no, 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 we don't want your little cousin to come along. She'll only, she'll only uh, slow us down. It's not good. But my mother said, if you don't let my little cousin come, then I'm not going to come either. So the four of them went back to Poland and pooled their money. And with all of their money, they had to decide if they were going to buy bread or fish. <laughs> very little money and they opted for the fish, uh, sorry, for the bread and they uh, went to Poland. In the meantime, my uncle, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to my father in a minute. My uncle, um, the middle brother, 
he had been sent to different camps as well. And the last camp he was in was Matthausen, and, and, um, which is infamous for this long, long staircase, which I just recently found out about. And uh, he survived. Somehow he survived. And then the, my, her little brother, Lolek, who I am named after, his Hebrew name would be, uh, his English name would be uh, Leon, and uh, his Hebrew name was Arya, which means lion, and I was named after him, Ariella. He, so he didn't make it. He was sent, the story goes, is that he was uh, light, that there was this Nazi that liked him. Hopefully he wasn't a pedophile. But there was this Nazi that liked him and tried to and sent him to Theresienstadt. Theresienstadt uh, Terezin is uh, uh, was a camp in Czechoslovakia, and it wasn't. Uh, it was a different camp. It was the it was the camp that the Nazis allowed the Red Cross to visit. Uh, proving that they were treating their Jews well. So the, the men and the women could see each other, the children could be uh, see each other, could be with their families, but they were still starved and beaten and sent to Auschwitz. And, but my uncle was, my, my young uncle, he was only 50 uh, at the end of the war. So um, I guess he was 12 when they arrested him. 15 years old and he got uh, um, sick and he died and there so he didn't make it now so um, that's that side of the family now my mother oh and my, I should say that my grandmother came from a very large family um, and there were eight uh, 10 siblings and they had families and all but two died were murdered her my great-grandparents i believe were murdered had a myriad of cousins that were murdered babies that were there's a story of one baby when that was well, i don't want to horrify anybody and but she was the baby was literally torn apart when the Nazis came into the, our area. Um, anyway. My father was, uh, was a fighter. My father was always a fighter. He actually was a boxer and, uh, he, and he, uh, he was very, uh, he was a Zionist, uh, a socialist Zionist. He belonged to a club. A lot of young people uh, joined Zionist organizations and he did and they were learning how to be how they were working on learning how to work the fields because the plan was that they would go to israel it was called palestine at the time that they would go there and he was learning how to do this and eventually they would get funding they 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 were very well my father's family had a little bit more money because they had a butcher store but uh, but uh, they they would uh, learn the pioneering. They would learn how to work the land, and uh, then they would eventually get tickets and go uh, get fare money and and tickets to make their way to Palestine. My father was due to get his pass passage to uh, Palestine, which I feel more comfortable calling it Israel. So I'm going to do that. So managed to get their passage to to Israel. However, the war the Nazis invaded, and he opted to stay and fight. So he was in the Polish army, and I think it took about two weeks for the Nazis, the German army, to take over Poland. And so my father and his brother, who was also in the army, decided that they should leave because they thought as soldiers that their lives were in danger. And uh, and so they left for Russia. Uh, and my but my uncle, his my father's brother, Aaron, he was married and he didn't want to leave his wife. So he changed his mind and stayed back in Poland. And uh, my father took off to Russia. 
my uncle and his wife, uh, his wife was shot. And my father, I believe, had a fiance too, uh, but I'm not sure if they, if they were engaged or not. I, I don't know. But she was shot and killed. And, um, and uh, my grandmother on my, and she, uh, sorry, I should go back a little bit. Oh, there are so many stories. It's I'm trying to do it in sequence. Okay. Before my father was a soldier, uh, before he fought the Nazis, people used to put up posters like the anti-Semites, the Polish anti-Semites used to put up posters, anti, anti-Semitic posters, and my father would follow them and take them down. And, and uh, my father had blue eyes and he was uh, very... Uh, he was a, an intellectual and, and was very well read. And he had a lot of friends, including non-Jewish friends. And, uh, but some of them were anti-Semites and uh, maybe they accepted him more because he had blue eyes and didn't look stereotypically Jewish. But, but one day the, the, they said to him, his, his friends, his, non, his Polish friends told him, warned him not to come to a certain area of the town because they were going to go beat up the Jews. So my father went to that part of the town and he fought against his friends, the friends that warned him. And uh, he also then had friends who were, became partisans, the non-Jewish Polish friends who became partisans. And they offered, somehow they, they got hold of him. I don't know how they managed to get some, in, communicate with him. And they told him that he could, that they could save his mother. But his mother, my grandmother, Chaya, she, uh, she didn't want to leave. She wanted to stay with her mother. And they were both killed in Auschwitz as well and my step her my father's stepfather was also killed in Auschwitz but I don't even know his name he wasn't nice to my father so I didn't want to know very much about him his my my father's brother ended up going to the camps and his uh, babe his little sister his stepsister also ended up going to the camps my father ended up going to Russia, and again, I, he wasn't because he could pass. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't sent to Siberia like a lot of Jewish refugees were. So my father hid among them, and he went to engineering school until he had the time mining engineering until he had the opportunity to rejoin an army. There was a Polish bat. Um, a, um, a Russian-backed Polish faction that my father heard about, and he he said he ran away from the mining company. I don't know why he said it that way, but again, information I don't have. But he went and joined the army, and then he went to fight the the Nazis. My father, there was a a mine that blew up. And shrapnel of, from the mine got into my father's back and, uh, and um, damaged one of his uh, kidneys, which had to be removed then. So, and he had a part of his finger was missing and he had a hole in his back from where the shrapnel went in. And, and uh, yeah, so he only had one kidney and in 1990. 1987 my father died because his remaining kidney failed him so I still I still blame the war for that and the Nazis for that but my father did um, fight against them and he uh, he was with the army that liberated my Donik. and he always felt so guilty so guilty because uh, he saw what was going on. My father's brother uh, ended up uh, being uh, ended up in, in starving to death on a train during transport. Uh, 
and uh, his little sister, my aunt, she, she lived in Israel, I call her Dada Bala. Bala. She was, I think, only also only about 15, maybe even 12. And when she was in the ghetto, they kept asking different, I forgot the name of what they call it, but they had edicts. And with the edicts, they would say, okay, everybody between this and this age, you have to come, and this gender, you have to come and meet. And that's, they would take a certain group and then shift them to Auschwitz. And, um, and my aunt, when she was the only one left in the ghetto and, and uh, because all of her, everybody else that she was with, her parents had already been killed. Everybody else that she was with um, was gone. And uh, she, and they kept, they started to, uh, the Nazis started to offer bread. If you come to this and this place, we'll give you bread and jam. So she was alone in the ghetto and she decided that she would go. So she ended up in going to the camps and she survived. She survived as well. So uh, after the war, my parents went, they met in Poland. Uh, they didn't know each other. My mother knew my father's brother, the one who died, and they looked so much alike that she thought he was Aaron, but he was Al, Alta was my father's name, Alta. And uh, she, uh, they went to a place called Kielce, which probably had an organization to help people find survivors, other to help them find their relatives. And in Kielce, there was a building that a lot of Jewish people who were there lived in and had offices in. And in Kielce, Kielce is known because there was a pogrom there that the Polish had against the Jews who came back as survivors. The Jews who survived the Holocaust were in Kielce looking for survivors, other survivors, and the Polish people killed over 20, about 21 Jewish people, including one of my, my a, a relative of mine through marriage. So he, unbelievable and my mother saw this through a window she witnessed it so uh this is what happened in poland so then they went to a uh she met my father uh they went to a displaced persons camp in germany and in in uh, 1949 they made their way to israel and lived there for 11 years my father had joined, my father was in the military there. He was part of the 1956 Suez Canal skirmish. And uh, I don't think they call it an official war, though it certainly sounds like one to me. And uh, that's where I was born and my sister was born. And uh, in 1960, we came to Canada because my mother's brother was here. And uh, she wanted to be near him and that that's the story that i have oh yeah thank you thank you for sharing it's um it's a lot um i i can't thank you enough for sharing this with us and i i truly truly hope that people understand that even though it, it did happen in the, it's in the past it's part of history it's so relevant today because I feel that maybe we're not going in the same direction, but the language that is still being used is 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 that of the same violence and and hatred, um, you know, for people, and and it's not because we're so used to anti-Semitism and, and the Jewish people to be blamed for everything that is going wrong in the world um, that it makes it okay. I think that it's again because it's just so common people um, feel that they can dismiss it and imagine that it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to them when it does. Um, because hatred is, 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 is a funny emotion. If it's not, if it's not one group, it would be another. Um, and as often in history, the, the Jewish people find themselves in the front line, but it doesn't mean that it's the only line that can be crossed. Yeah. If I can ask you, Ariella, do you, 
how how do you leave the um, the trauma of your parents because I, I know that i mean i know in my family for example um my father and um even though he he did not experience any of the the violence very much into internet uh, internalized trauma um almost as if it was passed on in his dna um and he carried he carried that with him his entire life and and i think to a great extent he passed it on to me um i was just wondering how how you felt about it and and how your parents you know how did they manage to not only survive but you know become you know functional members of society and and found the strength to 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 give and have children and and hope after everything that they experienced uh, well i think they kept busy <laughs> that was the way to do it my mother had a very hard time when she retired very hard time because she started bringing in she started remembering things well as my it was very hard so she kept trying to be busy after they they retired she she wanted to work again and um i don't know how they did it i don't know they would as i said when i was as i was growing up i as i said i started to uh i didn't really i only heard the same stories that i just told you so there was a lot of information missing and it wasn't until i was in my teens and and up to my early to my 20s that i i there was a show on called the holocaust and uh, it was a series a dramatic series on television and uh we watched it we all watched it my parents too and they just watched it silently and uh and we uh that's when i realized it just dawned on me how much information was missing but um i was uh still not ready to to ask to ask them questions and i was traveling i went to europe and i went to israel i was traveling a little bit as a teenager and a young adult and i it wasn't until later on that i i was ready to ask them specific questions and i tried to ask my mother like i didn't even know what their life in their ghetto in the ghetto was and and i tried to ask my mother and uh she said she said uh that there was one woman in the camp, in one of the camps she just arrived in a couple and she or an ss woman i'm not sure and she stood up and she 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 scanned all the women that had just arrived there with her index finger a point and pointed around them and said you will in german you'll never get out of here alive and and my mother and uh and then she said she can still hear the screaming the women screaming and and as she was telling me this and remembering it she literally took her hands and pushed the air pushed tried to push that memory away from her and told me to leave her alone so these are i don't know how they lived with that i know every friday night my mother would cry when she lit the candles uh we didn't put hanukkah candles in the window because we didn't want people she didn't want anybody to see we were jewish through the window um i don't i don't know how they did it but uh she to me she had survivor eyes like sometimes you would catch her in moments and she would just go into her somewhere she would like disappear she wouldn't be present and my father my father was very angry he was he he was an angry man and it was uh very difficult and and i inherited definitely some craziness <laughs> me myself and some of my cousins just think that we're a little bit crazy from it because um i know that i'm in the middle like i'll wait uh, thinking about the holocaust just comes up out of nowhere 
out of nowhere, I'll be doing something and then bam, it comes up. And I know it's typical for Jewish people. Like if we go into the subway or if we go into an enclosed room, it feels like we think about gas chambers sometimes. I know my sister and I went to Disney Disneyland and we went into this big theater. It was like a dome and we just looked at each other and we were both thinking the same thing. But for me, like even just, just the other day, I'm brushing my teeth in the morning. I wake up and brush my teeth and I think about the fact that they didn't get to brush their teeth in the camps. It just out of nowhere, right? Just there are triggers. There are so many triggers. I was out with my friends for dinner and and we're having a nice conversation. And I was just talking about being tired from work and telling them, oh, I don't think I would have made it in a concentration camp because I'm so tired. And they were shocked that I, that I said that. Whereas for me, it was like a normal thought. So this is uh, my craziness. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't think, think it's craziness. I think that um, a lot of us could, could share into, you know, I think what you're just saying. I think this is this is our reality, and I don't think that people can appreciate it. And how can they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we we coming towards the end of the of the podcast. So I wanted to thank you so very much for sharing this with us, and I, and I hope that people who are listening and will be listening in the the coming few days and weeks um, will understand why we did this today. Uh, we're not trying to, you know, be the victims of history. Um, I think we just, we the care of a tradition that needs to be spoken out um, and that people need to remember um, and to remember that while millions, di millions died, many survived and um, it is now responsibility and I think duty um, to speak their story so that people could not just remember but understand that it can never happen again and and that is not just true for the Jewish people but any minority that is finding itself today um, under oppression um, need and deserve to be protected that's true so, um, thank you for thank sharing you. your story Ariella I think it's no, so thank important you. It's, uh, yeah it's, it's just I always get a little bit funny around this time of year because it's uh, you know, it kind of forces us to um, to delve into um, memories that we don't necessarily want to revisit. Um, but, you know, it's necessary. So thank you again, Ariella. I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of your time. And, and I know it, it can't be easy for you. And uh, Sarah, thank you so much as usual to, uh, to be my lovely co-host on Disruptive Podcast. So um, thank you. Of course. And I'd like to thank you both again for uh, giving me the opportunity to honor my family. Thank you. You're very welcome. Of course. I wish you the best. I wish you the best. Thank Thanks, Ariella. I'm going to end the podcast now. Bye. Bye.